Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the new year. Starting off season two, we meet at Historic Sodderley. Sodderley is a historic plantation. It actually has parts of the house that date back to 1703. It's survived all of that time until today. It's been through three major wars, hurricanes, lightning strikes, numerous different landowners who each in turn did their own renovations to the house. And today, it is an interpretive site, and they have over 94 acres of land, they have 20 authentic historic structures, they even have a sustainable farm that donates food back to local pantries, which I think is really cool. For this episode, we're focusing on the Chinese Chippendale Bannister, which was constructed in 1780. So it's not what the Chippendale that I thought that maybe it was. Thomas Chippendale was a man who actually had his own catalogs and he was really famous in the mid to late 1700s for his furniture style and design style. So we're going to learn all about that. And we're also going to be kind of doing our own mystery at the museum situation where there was a portrait in Sodderley and they knew who the portrait was of, but they did not know who painted the portrait. And they were able to find it out by working with the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery. There were some curators there. One of them visited, recognized it, and it's this whole really cool story about how they deciphered who was the artist. So as always, you can find pictures of today's episode by going to www.curatorschoicepodcast.com. You can check out the Facebook page, the Instagram page, and if you are enjoying the content on Curator's Choice, consider becoming a patron supporter of the show. You can go to patreon.com slash curator's choice. There are two different support tiers, and their benefits include early access and bonus episodes. So stay tuned for the next episode. It will be on February 1st, and there we're going to be meeting with Tim Baxter at Niagara Falls Oakwood Cemetery, and we're going to learn about some historical figures who are laid to rest at the cemetery, including Annie Taylor, who is the first person to ever go over the falls in a barrel and Homan Walsh, whose kite flew across the gorge and connected Canada with the United States and what was to become the Niagara Falls Suspension Bridge. So we have that coming up, and then I hope that you really enjoy what we talk about at Sodderley. I had a great time, so enjoy. So what kind of was the beginning, the very beginning of Sodderley? The beginning of Sodderley, as we cover the history, starts in 1699, uh, James Bowles was uh, the son of a tobacco and sugar merchant in London. Uh, James purchases 2,000 acres of land from a larger land grant, Resurrection Manor. And by 1703, uh, he has the original hall and chamber house built or constructed using a post and ground foundation made of cypress and cedar post. When you're saying post and ground, I'm assuming that means something in particular. Uh, we're one of the, only a handful of houses left in the country with this type of construction where they would put, that's the foundation of the house, these posts, and the house is built on that. The reason why they use this, these particular types of wood was they are uh, old growth versions of cypress and cedar are bug repellent and rot resistant. Oh. So there was a, a lot of knowledge that went behind and went into the construction. 
there are certain parts of the house where you go, well, gravity hasn't been friendly to this place, but it's still here. For some reason, it's still here. Uh, you, you know, some days I go, man, it's going to go down the hill, but it's still here. So he bought this land and built the small, the small, the original, the original two room structure, structure mm-hmm. and it was to have a tobacco plantation. It crop diverse, but tobacco was the dominant cash crop. Um, but there was also grain and lumbering and fishing that was done. Um, all of these natural resources and raw materials would be harvested or taken from the land, and then they would be sent to England to be processed and then re- then sold, usually back to the colonies. Was this area, I'm, I'm assuming then it wasn't very populated when he started this plantation. It was kind of in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Maryland starts... Uh, in 1634 with the, the arrival of the colonists that were at the Ark and the Dove. They make a stop at St. Clement's Island and then they go down to Saint, with, establish what is now St. Mary's City. And so there were a few little uh, little centers of population, but for the most part it was uh, agricultural or water-based ec- economy and so people were spaced out. So what happens to this area after Bowles? Um, after Bowles passes in 1727, his widow, Rebecca, will take over um, for about a two-year period ownership of the site, of the property, and then she will marry George Plater II, who um, his family owns it for four generations. The interesting thing, in my opinion, about George Plater II is that he was the attorney who signed off two years earlier on the inventory of James Bowles' estate. And so he would have been somewhat familiar with, um, and not only did he do this with bulls, but other large landowners in the region, he would have been very familiar with what Rebecca had. She started looking really mighty fine after. (laughs) She, She looked very attractive and was a very appealing candidate for a spouse to a lot of elite men in Maryland and Virginia. And you were talking to me earlier about kind of how land ownership is very, very indicative of your status. And so I can imagine back in that time, it wasn't normal for a woman to have that kind of status on her own. Though she got it because she was widowed, it makes sense that she wouldn't have stayed that way for very long customarily, right? It, yeah, it reminds me of the Odyssey where Odysseus is off at war and, you know, he's proclaimed dead, you know, because it's been over a decade. And he comes back to find his widow having a line of suitors lined up and... I imagine Rebecca had, we know that Rebecca had quite a few suitors, including at least one from the Calvert family. Yeah, so I'll just add that James Bowles, of course, was a agent for the Royal African Company. So he made a lot of his money from the actual transatlantic slave trade. And we're one of five Middle Passage sites. Uh, Sodderley is one, Edgewater, Annapolis, Baltimore, and Oxford where ships with captured African cargo would go from the west coast of Africa and land in the Americas. This was one of the hubs where they, where they, where they came as soon as they came over on the ships and then they were sold out? Is that what you mean by middle? Sorry. So there's the triangular trade route that connects uh, Europe to Africa and to the Americas. So raw materials would go from here to back to Europe. Europe would then send gold and guns, basically slave traders to Africa, and then the enslaved would be sent, or the captive prior to being sold into slavery would be sent from Africa to points throughout the Americas. 
that route from Africa to the Americas is called the Middle Passage or the transatlantic slave trade. Landholders were also slaveholders during slavery. Some estimates we have for James Bowles indicate that as much as 30% of his wealth from what we can kind of compute was the result of being an investor in the transatlantic slave trade. And so the history of slavery at Sauterly literally starts with James Bowles, day kind of day one kind of situation. He was not out there working 2,000 acres of land himself. He is a wealthy man. Wealthy men did not feel that it was their place in society to get their hands dirty. And so from the moment James Bowles is here, there's somebody doing the work. And that somebody else is. There, a lot of times their names have been lost to history, but due to his inventory, we're able to know the names of quite a few of them. And you were saying that UNESCO has said that this site is one of the... It's a site of memory. A site of memory. Slave and, root site of memory. Yes. And what is what does that stem from? I, I think I saw something so, on the website that you have an old slave cabin here? We, we do. do. We have a 19th century existing original slave cabin. That's, that's pretty rare, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And then you have... The, the records, and you guys are constantly updating them, doing more research, trying to find more names. There's an exhibit inside based on the enslaved in the 19th century a family, the Kane family. Um, so you can actually, visitors can actually go inside, and there's an exhibit showing, you know, their life there. You can interact with the space, and it's out there by our Middle Passage marker. And before we get off the subject of the women. <laughs> yeah, Sauterly and women go. Yeah. yeah, because that is a theme that runs through the house is that these males are getting their land and property and most of their wealth from their marriages. It was, so yeah, it wasn't enough. Platers, yeah, um, wasn't the Briscoes. It wasn't enough for George Plater II <laughs> to have a house at Annapolis, to have be an attorney, to be an educated man. True wealth was defined by land ownership. And the more land you had, the higher up you were, the more well-off you were. And so all of them, really all of the men in Sauterly benefited either uh, they acquired Sauterly through marriage or they acquired status through marriage or they acquired greater wealth through marriage. And they, I mean, really a good example is Herbert, who married the daughter of J.P. Morgan, and he they had a cash wedding gift. The wedding was worth, valued at $2 million in 1900 when they got married. Uh, they had an allowance of 20000 a year starting in 1900. They had trust funds set up for them. And it's like, man, you did a good job. No, I mean, no wonder he spent over six years pursuing his wife. Literally, not even figuratively, it paid off. No, for all of the men that owned Sauterly, oh, yeah. So we had Bowles, and then we had, after Bowles, it went to Plater. And then his, Plater got it from marrying his wife, or? Bowles, when he passes away, he has no male heir, so Rebecca, it, it basically inherits. And then it really was customary that when this kind of thing happened, which really didn't happen quite, didn't happen that often, if the woman remarried, then her husband would take over the role of landowner. And then that was the start of the four generations who owned the plantation. For the Plater family, yes. 
Okay. Tell us a little bit more about what happens after that point. I'm curious. I know that it's, you know, four generations and we don't have to be specific about all of it, but I'm assuming throughout that entire time, this location is changing every, oh, every constantly. The Platers were here during the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. And as a result of the two massive economic blows from those wars, you know, their their wealth starts to turn from the upward spike it had trend it had been on. And then there's a couple of smaller owners, William Somerville and uh, the Briscoe Thomas Barber, who uh, would purchase what remained of the property by 1823. So somewhere between George Plater III, Sodderley was almost 7,000 acres, and by 1823, it's a much, much smaller site. It kind of sounds like they were doing super well, doing super well, they had a lot of land, and then they kind of started selling. Well, and the, 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 yeah, yeah, the major blow was the War of 1812. There's uh, like 49 enslaved people that take their freedom. They go with the British, and they leave Sotterly. And that, that really changed the trajectory uh, it becomes much har- no labor force. It becomes much mm-hmm. harder to keep these estates together. So George Plater the fifth sells Sodderly the whole thing, and then it's broken up, and Sodderly becomes a thousand acres. What's called Sodderly where this house is, and um, then when Thomas Barber buys it in eight, advise the thousand acres in eighteen twenty three. His uh, daughter, then his three years later, he dies, and his daughter, Lydia Barber, and his stepdaughter, Emmeline Dallum, inherit the property. Their husbands split up the property, and so Emmeline and her husband, Walter Hanson Stone Briscoe, then own 400 acres that become Sodderly, and that's all through the Civil War into the 1880s until Herbert Sodderly buys the property in 1910. So once again, the son, uh, Charles County son, who is not the firstborn son, marries very well. Yeah, he does pretty well because he's, <laughs> yeah, he's what, second, thirdborn right. son. So right. there was no, well, primogeniture didn't work out. So, you know, he he was in line. Uh, he wouldn't have benefited from his family. He, they never gave him anything. So he, he does pretty well for himself marrying the stepdaughter of Thomas Barber and I think their time here is probably the most chaotic era in the history of this site. But when you talk about the War of 1812, that's where we can really introduce with visitors known names of the enslaved because there was an enslaved man here, Peregrine Young, who was one of the leaders that helped encourage 40-some-odd enslaved people to flee from here. And, and it really introduces the key question in the history, which is how do you define freedom and at what cost are you willing to go to achieve it? And so Peregrine actually dies on a British ship, the Albion, en route to the UK. You know, really, you have to assume he, he died a free man, which is better than being an enslaved one. Um, stories that some of the stories we know of from family histories is that many of them you know, were sent in the wintertime in their summer clothes, or if they were sent to Trinidad, they were part of a workforce that was kind of separate because they were descended, they were enslaved, escaped enslaved people uh, at a time when the British, even though this slavery had been abolished in the UK, it still existed in the British colonies in the Caribbean. And so they kind of had 
this uh, concept of they freed the enslaved here, encouraged them to escape, to join them as a way to break the economic backbone, which was the plantation system, but they were not doing it for a moral reason. So it cont- they continued to have slavery in other parts of the British world. So this happens, there's this escape, and then they struggle even more so because they don't have this free labor source. And is that why you said that they have some of the most tumultuous history of this area? Is, uh, with is the Briscoe era, that's um, 1826 until 1910, so it includes emancipation. So before that, during the Plater period, there's the abolition of that transatlantic slave trade that's made illegal, even though there is a, an illegal market that will continue even into the 19th century, later into the 19th century, bringing people from ha- forcibly from Africa to here. There's another alternative that emerges, especially in Maryland and Virginia, being the Old South, which is the domestic slave trade. And so that becomes an economic institution So here. Maryland supplies yeah. enslaved people to the South. They're bought and sold in places like Maryland and Virginia. They're sent South to states like Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi. And we have quite a few known enslaved descendants who are in the Gulf region. And so they go from a crop diverse, primarily tobacco plantation, to a one cash crop plantation in the deep south, either growing sugarcane or rice. So what ends up happening here when there's no longer any enslaved labor here? What does this, what does Soderly look like at that point? Post-emancipation. So emancipation is interesting in Maryland's case because Maryland is exempt from Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation as a Union state during the Civil War. And so suddenly the Briscoe family goes from having a free source of labor that they really treat less than livestock to um, having a majority of the uh, the people who were enslaved here flee, but those that remained and those who were brought on were had to be paid some kind of a wage. And so quite a few of our descendants have ties to those that that stayed on after 1864 and would work for another generation or several generations. One of our descendants on the board, his family had been at Sodderley for three generations, so kind of coming in at the tail end of the Briscoe era, and um, they would have been a part of a domestic or field workers or groundskeepers workforce that had to be paid some kind of wage. Sharecropping. Extensively throughout Southern Maryland. What does Sodderley look like to you guys today? I mean, you offer a ton of things and a lot of a lot of different perspectives. But I saw I also saw that you guys even still have the farm that still produces. So agriculture has been a part of Sodderley's history from the beginning. Um, and so yes, there's still agriculture as a part of the site. As for what Sodderley is looks like to us today, I think the history is more relevant now than ever. That's the way I see it. Um, to understand the events that we see on the news today, you have to look at the history of sites like this. And people come here very intentionally and purposefully to understand more about the past so they understand more about what's going on today. 
Well, and you guys, like you were saying, a lot of places have items that are behind glass that are kind of unattainable and their histories aren't really the most accurately represented, even in some cases. Um, but some of the items that you guys have for us today, I mean, the banister, you can actually put your hands on and actually feel a part of a really cool history. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the banister? And I'm really excited because even just speaking with you earlier, I learned so much about banisters and houses and their cultural significance. So... <laughs> So the banister was constructed in about 1780 uh, during the time of George Plater III's ownership of the house. Uh, the man who gets kind of the credit for the construction is a man named Richard Bolton, who had in previous interpretations been labeled an indentured servant. He was more of a contracted uh, person. He was a skilled joiner and glazier, which meant he could do this fine level of carpentry and woodworking. Um, however, it's also important to know that this banister would have had enslaved and uh, freed black carpenters. Uh, many of the enslaved carpenters would have been rented out by other plantation owners as a source of income, uh, as many slaveholders did with their skilled workers. It was additional revenue for them. And the banister is done in a style called Chinese Chippendale, which was pretty popular in England and in other parts of Europe. And it seems to have carried over by the colonists, the elite colonists, like the Plater's family. And uh, you see it in a few other places. Bolton had also worked on a no longer existing structure called Bushwood Manor, which was said to have had a Chinese Chippendale banister as well. And he also worked for um, St. Andrew's Episcopal Church doing a lot of the design work there. And so the banister was recently restored during the pandemic and they did a lot of stabilization because there's very minimal hardware in it. Um, and so the piece just needed some TLC. And you know, when you look at it, it, it is a unique piece. I have not seen many in that style. I mean, it's, it seems a little bit it, it just, it doesn't seem out of place, but it just seems that it's obviously something that's special and was meant to mean something and that something really is status. Yes, absolutely. So Sauterly is unique in that it is a colonial Tidewater plantation manor house that was, whereas many others were torn down and replaced with brick structures, this wood structure was just added onto and renovated and um, updated at, over, with by various owners over the centuries. And one of the updates was when George Plater III commissioned to have that staircase added. So you were telling me that the purpose of kind of, you know, you have this, this nice banister, then you have the walkways, you know, in the back, you were saying that was usually more of like an office space for official business. And then up this grand staircase would be more intimate and private, like the children's rooms and the bedrooms and things. It kind of just goes to show that as soon as you walked in, their whole entire purpose was to be like, look, I'm you know, I'm, I'm fancy. It's keeping up with the Washingtons, if you will, because there was no greater celebrity at that time period than George and Martha Washington. George Plater III, wanting to be a part of that social circle, is going to try and make his house reflect his status. And so, yeah, the house, having a hallway in the colonial era, kind of showed that you had um, a need to kind of filter your guest at that entranceway. And, you know, a manor house was more than just a home. The downstairs of the house is much more formal and the rooms have purpose or intent 
And so you have a withdrawing room for entertaining elite guests. That's the lady of the house's domain. You have the landowner, slaveholder's office. You have, and then the upstairs um, would have been the family areas. And so we, I tell visitors, children don't go into their father's office. The overseer is not going into the withdrawing room. And your business partners aren't going upstairs to your family spaces. And that's something I never really thought about before as of being in a place that you are prominent enough that you need to filter the people who are walking in through your home, right? Because I feel like if you're an average Joe, you have average Joes that are coming to your place. It's not really necessary. But if you are one of the elite, then you, you know, part of the reason that you are an elite is because you have created these steps in your society. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, this is where this step goes and this is where this step goes. I had never really considered that. So a manor house or a plantation uh, like Sodderly is is a business and so you have to have these business informal areas and you know you had some pretty grassy areas but for the most part your whole site is dedicated to a business of making money and profiting and so the you didn't really necessarily worry about formal or informal areas like your your upstairs your bedrooms and things like that you there was a lot happening down here in the, in the downstairs of the house like, like I, I said, said, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really interesting piece. piece. I did want to ask, and I'm not sure if this is um, anything, but you're, so you said Chippendale. What is the original Chippendale? Because unfortunately, all I can think of is being from Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> the Chippendale. We know where your mind is. Yeah, your mind went somewhere way off track. I was born and raised in that state, and that's like... It's better than when, I, as a kid, my it. mind goes to it. Chippendale, the two Disney um, chipmunks, and, you know, the Chippendale rescue uh, yeah. adventures. Uh, uh, the original... Uh, Chippendale is a style of furniture um, and design popularized by uh, Thomas Chippendale, I believe, um, in England. Uh, he creates a, a catalog, and you would create a catalog of your designs. And this is just one of the known Chippendale designs. There are many interpretations of that uh, Chippendale pattern, and this uh, Chinese Chippendale is a interpretation or a kind of a subset of that. So for this staircase, I mean, did they get a catalog and they saw it in there and they were like, I want something like this. And then you take that design idea and then you, you have carpenters create it. Basically you would either that, or you would go to somebody like Richard Bolton, who had a design and kind of customization background and have them custom create it for you. So if they saw it in a catalog or Bolton had access to a catalog, um, they would have selected that. Or they may have gone to another plantation home or formal home and seen something similar and wanted it recreated. Okay. Well, speaking of uh, excellent craftsmanship, you guys have a, a kind of a mystery at the museum of your own mm -hmm. that we also wanted to talk about. And it is in the form of a lovely portrait. So we have a portrait that dates back to the 1840s of uh, Herbert Satterley's mother, Sarah Herbert um, purchased Sodderly in 1910, and um, he was the son-in-law of J.P. Morgan, and a lot more emphasis is, has always been placed on that parental relationship as opposed to his parents, but Herbert, being an, a, a businessman and a lawyer a lot of, and a colonial revivalist, a lot of the details in the home focus on that, so having this portrait of his mother um, is kind of unique and kind of personalizes and softens him 
a little bit, uh, makes him a little more human as a figure in the history of the house. Uh, we had about four years ago uh, a, a curator from the National Portrait Gallery, Robin Aslison, and she came here for a speaking engagement. Um, prior to her speaking engagement, we gave her a tour of the manor house. And while we were in the dining room, she just kept coming back to this portrait and wanted to know who the artist was. We did not at the time know. And so Jeannie and I and Robin kind of put our heads together, started doing some research. Um, other members of the curatorial team at the National Portrait Gallery kind of helped in trying to kind of come to a conclusion as to who we suspect the artist was. Um, being that it's the 1840s, that kind of narrowed it down. Being that um, Sarah Satterley was a part of the Livingston family from upstate New York with ties to um, Massachusetts and parts of New England, that helped narrow down that kind of circle of artists even more. And then the biggest clue we had was the style of portraiture. It's uh, charcoal crayon. And that kind of helped narrow it down to one particular artist a man named Seth Wells Cheney, and by chance, the National Portrait Gallery had um, some of his pieces in their collections, and working with them, uh, we had photos that we sent to them of this portrait, and we were able to kind of say with almost 100% accuracy that this is who the artist is. There's no indication on the portrait or on the backing itself that would say otherwise, and so, but this fits his style. It fits in with uh, previous portraits of women from elite families that he did. And so it was kind of, uh, kind of like a mystery that we wanted to solve because once the question was asked, who is the artist? We kind of were like, okay, now we got to know. <laughs> and so it's, you know, it's kind of nice. Um, it, so it, kind of fit perfectly with um, him being the artist with the time period and the subject matter so and another interesting point that you brought up was her hair so it was something about how much ear was showing so yeah she looks very queen victorian and victoria had kind of the the loops of hair and throughout her reign as her hair uh, length changed or grew um, and the hairstyles grew. It kind of became a way of determining when portraits were done. And because she's Queen Victoria, she sets the trend standards at that time. And so we were able to kind of use that, use the hair style as a kind of a way to help pinpoint, yes, this is late 1840s, uh, uh, mid to late 1840s. And that just kind of was a unique way of kind of figuring out when you basically super sleuthed it. We had to, because once <laughs> she asked the question, we had to find out. And she, you know, it was constant dialogue back and forth with them. And it's fun. It's a fun process to, oh, now we have an excuse to do some fun research. You yeah, know? it's absolutely, <laughs> when you have a piece and there's kind of like this blank on a certain aspect of the history, you're kind of like, okay, now I need to know. And knowing the artist and their prevalence at that time, it kind of helps, it just adds a little detail that we didn't know, and it secures the fact that the Satterleys and the Sarah's family, the Livingstons, were indeed quite prominent people. And I think it also counts because you can stick it to whoever said that the, the, <laughs> that the frame is worth more than the print. And we love you anyway. But 
but also it helps the museum yeah yeah realize what they really have and how they, it needs to be supported and curated and preserved so. well and it shows that you guys are an active museum you're not just static you're actively doing research to find even more information about an item that has been your collection for decades and decades uh, it's interesting we have pieces that you know, somebody along the lines makes, you know, one assumption about it and that becomes fact and it sticks for for over a decade. And, I, and somebody made a comment and, yeah, the myths are hard to kill because it, it Herbert Satterley especially created quite a few of the myths that we have with the house. But things like having china plates that, that the Satterleys were uh, saved from being destroyed as the and they were given to them by the Russian Czar and as they were trying to escape during the Russian Revolution and I'm going, oh, what part of any of that story makes sense? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's not you know Herbert's daughter goes to the Soviet Union, but as far as we can tell, nobody in the Satterly family was interacting with the Russian imperial family. But, you know, there are things like that. It's like, so the myth is great. The legend tells about... It tells about the people. The mentality <laughs> of the people who had these pieces and had access to them before we did. But it helps to know what's, well, what's the true story. Mm-hmm. And so we know the plates came from a member of the Morgan family, Mabel Satterley Ingalls' aunt. And they are English China. They're hand-painted pieces, Royal Crown Derby. Uh, company and I got to work with the curator from there as well and identifying these pieces because the first time I heard this Russian czar myth I went but knowing that you know knowing the myth is great because it tells you about the time period that the myth was created and there's a lot of myth before the 1950s um, Herbert Satterley before he died uh, he he literally would sit down with a reporter and come and created all these crazy stories that still live on today I mean, you can't kill them if you tried. Stories mm-hmm. about pirates, secret passageways, the key family, and the etching of the word key with a diamond ring in the window. And there's, uh, and when Herbert's daughter Mabel created Sodderly as a museum in the early 1960s, the original tours were based on myth and legend. So even today, we tell, occasionally we get brave and offer a legends and lore tour. Well, thank you guys so much for for being willing to be on the podcast and for sharing some of Sadali's history. And thanks for for sharing everyone's stories and and making making those those paths important. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for having us and oh, coming. This over. was interesting. This was exciting. Mm-hmm.